despite whatever circumstances we might be uh, in or we would find ourselves in, Christians should be one of the most grateful people on this earth. Um, that, however, is seldom the case, unfortunately. We tend to get fixated on our circumstances here and now. We look at how chaotic and wicked the world has become. We look at how crazy our politics and our politicians uh, have become. And we get discouraged nowadays just pumping gas. Uh, looking and gazing at our grocery bill can become very disheartening. Um, I know it has it in my household. I'm not sure how you're going to make ends meet. So these, these things can pile on, and, and, and the life of a Christian can become one of, of sometimes bitterness or ungratefulness and unthankfulness. But we as Christians would do well to remember that our joy, our gratefulness, and our hope is not contingent upon our circumstances here and now. But our thankfulness is brought forth from a right understanding of who God is and who we are in him through Christ. And it is my prayer that this text would remind us of that this morning, that it would, uh, especially during this holiday season, um, where we can easily lose focus on that which truly matters and that which we must be most grateful for. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, um, I know it's up there, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And... Uh, what I'd like to do is, just, it's 13 verses, so I would like to read through the text, and then we'll pray and begin examining it. Second Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Emil at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king command his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servant. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray. 
Father, we humbly come before you this morning. We, we thank you for so many blessings, God. There's so many things that we can, we can be thankful and grateful to you for. But God, we, we first and foremost thank you for Christ. It is because of him that we stand here today, that we can enter into your throne room of grace, Lord. It is because of him, Lord, that you hear us and that we have salvation, Lord. I pray that you would be with me, and I, and I pray that you would speak through me your word. And Holy Spirit, if, if I were to speak the most eloquent sermon this morning by my own power, it would be of no avail. It would fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts. It is only by your power, God, that hearts are softened, that the blind see, and the dead are raised, Lord. So I pray that you would speak through me, that you would edify us this morning through your word. May it be preached faithfully and purely. May Christ be exalted, and may you receive all the glory and I thank you, God, for this undeserved privilege. We ask and praise in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Amen. All right, but well, before we dive into this text, I think it's necessary to set up some of the, the context of this passage. Um, this David that we read of is, is, in fact, the one same David of uh, David and Goliath, who later becomes the great king of, of Israel. Uh, king Saul, who was Israel's first king, was rejected by God because of his sin, and in his place, David was anointed to become the future king of Israel. David defeats Goliath, leads, leads Saul's army into numerous victories that the Lord granted and became favored in the people's eyes. And with much jealousy, Saul seeks to kill or uh, end the life of, of David, his rival to the throne, and David spends a, a good chunk of his life on the run, in the wilderness, on the run, um, even though he is promised to be the anointed king of Israel. Uh, and uh, until Saul finally relents and, and is killed along with his sons in, in battle against the Philistines, um, still, Saul did have one surviving son named Ishbosheth, who attempts to reign as king over Israel. Um, Israel is divided, thinking that hey, we have Saul's son. He is a descendant of the king. It is he who should be king. Um, you have Judah in the, north, or in the south excuse me, who says, no, it should be David. And so David rules over Judah in the south, and Ishbosheth uh, is <clears throat> king, made over king of Israel in the north um, until he is murdered and... David becomes king over all Israel at the age of around 37. So let us look at verses 1 through 5. And this is my, my first point here, the invitation of the king. He said, David said, Is there anyone left to the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. 
Verse 4, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And the king David sent and brought him from the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, who is this Jonathan that the text speaks of? This is Saul's son, Jonathan, the, I believe this is his eldest son and rightful heir to the throne. Yet, that is not what Jonathan is remembered by. Jonathan is mainly remembered by his close and intimate friendship with David. He loved David, and their friendship was unlike anything else we see in Scripture. In 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, we read, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that, he was, that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And the thing that astonishes me of this is that, that Jonathan is the rightful heir to the throne of, David, or of Saul, of Israel. And here is David, who has been anointed king, and is the rival, you would think, to Jonathan. Jonathan, though, uh, is completely submissive to the will of God. And, and out of his love for David, is willing to, to lay aside his, his kingly rights, lay aside for the good of David. Um, this act signified his loyalty to David as well as his recognition of, of God's anointing of him as the next king of Israel. Uh, the scriptures go on to say that and tell us that when, even when Jonathan's father sought the life of David, it was Jonathan who would warn David in order to preserve his life even at the risk of his own. 1 Samuel 20 verses 30 through 33. And not only does Jonathan do this at the expense of his own father, but even at the expense of his own throne. 1 Samuel 23, 16 through 17. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Now, there's no doubt that David is a, a foreshadow of, of Christ in the Old Testament. But even here, we, we get a glimpse of even Jonathan uh, like Jonathan, Jesus sets aside his glory or, or conceals it to take a humble position, submitting himself to the will and plan of the Father for the good of those called by him. And when we see this imagery that's being painted out throughout all the, the Old Testament of both Jonathan and, and David. And we read more in depth of, of a covenant made between Jonathan and David in one, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 17. It says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth and John, uh, from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now the purpose of this is, and this time, it was not uncommon 
for when a new king who is not in a direct lineage to take the throne, it was not uncommon for them to wipe out any type of succession to the throne, any type of competition, especially uh, of that of the reign of the past king. You didn't want a sense of nationalism to be sprung up within the country or people group that you were ruling and them to establish the rightful heir. So it was very common at this time that if a king would take over a dynasty, take over a kingdom um, who was not in the direct lineage of the previous, he would uh, wipe out all other descendants of that king so that there would be no competition and there would be no um, uh, threat to his throne. Um, this was very, very common in, in this time. <clears throat> and Jonathan makes David take an oath that when he is finally established as king, he will not wipe out him and his lineage. Um, Jonathan, unfortunately, was killed in battle along with Saul by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And as mentioned before, the kingdom divides as one of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, succeeds to the throne of Israel in the north, and David was anointed king of Judah in the south. Um, like I said, Ishbosheth is murdered, leaving David to rule over all Israel. And it could be here that, that David is, is thinking to himself when he hears of the murder of Saul's last son, that the oath that he gave to Jonathan may be voided, may not be able to be fulfilled by David. It would appear that that. Saul's line, and therefore Jonathan's line, lineage, has ceased. <clears throat> the Lord had indeed given David the throne and taken vengeance on all his enemies, yet there is still no sign of enemy left in the house of Saul. Verse 2 says that Ziba, who was once a servant of Saul, is brought forth to David. Uh, and if anybody knows the answer to this question, it, it is surely this guy. And and here's the thing we could, we could see of David is that he would have been fine to say, all right, I didn't murder Ishbosheth, and I didn't kill Saul or Jonathan or anybody else. I myself kept the promise. And it appears that there's nobody left in the house of Saul. And he could have been fine to leave that alone. And it appears that there's nobody else, but he inquires. So you can see the heart of David. He's, he's, I, I, if I'm, I don't want to add to the text, but if I'm David and, and I, I'm wondering, man, is the covenant that I gave to Jonathan, am I going to be able to fulfill it? And so you see this, this heart of David that he's longing to, to fulfill this, this covenant that he made with his friend. And... As already stated, Ziba was a servant of Saul's household. And once Saul was killed, Ziba was put in charge of, of tending to the land of Saul, benefiting from his proceeds. And we will later see that, uh, or later in, in, in the book of Samuel, we see that Ziba is somewhat of a shady character. Uh, Ziba tells David that, that not only is there one of descendants of Saul remaining, but is in fact the son of his beloved friend, Jonathan. This, of course, is none other than Mephibosheth. Now, I love this text. Um, it's like I said, it's one of my favorite Old Testament texts. 
Um, I love the, the story. I, I love what it conveys. I love its ties to Christ. Um, another thing that I love about this is the fact that I can say Mephibosheth. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people stumble on that, and I, I'm able to say it. And I love the fact that I can say Mephibosheth. I love the name. I love the way it rolls off the tongue there. So um, it just adds another reason why I love this text so much. Um, <clears throat> did anyone was looking at that beforehand thinking like, how do you pronounce this? Um, so, <clears throat> uh, so Mephibosheth is the, the son of Jonathan. Um, not a whole lot is known about Mephibosheth prior to this other than what we read in, in 2 Samuel 4.4 4, where it says that um, 2 Samuel 4.4, 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled, in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. It is most likely at the news of Mephibosheth's father and grandfather being killed, um, going back to what would normally happen when a, when a kingdom was taken over and overthrown, is that you would find any heirs to that throne and you would kill them. So out of love and, and care for Mephibosheth, his nurse um, takes him and in her haste he falls. And in doing so, um, probably breaks his leg, breaks his foot, doing something like that. Uh, and being in haste, wanting to travel, most likely was, wasn't able to, to tend to the wounds, wasn't able to tend to his feet, put them in stents or whatever, and therefore he became lame in his feet. And that's just my guess. I'm not sure how bad of a fall this was. Um, but from a young age, uh, he had issues with his feet due to this fall. <clears throat> so he, he grows up permanently crippled. And if you read it in First Chronicles 8.34, 834, you will discover that his name was originally Meribaal, which most likely translates as opponent of Baal. His name is later changed to Mephibosheth, which means from the mouth of shame, uh, which has it, this connotation of one that is, that is shamed. Uh, this name most likely is given to him after this horrible ordeal of a day. And Mephibosheth goes into hiding in the house of Mekur, which seems to be a wealthy man at Lodabar. Now, Lodabar's location is still not known uh, by, by scholars and historians to this day. It's uncertain, but its name is very interesting. It literally translates as no word or no thing, nothing. Um, <clears throat> it is, it's a negative title, basically stating that it, it was nothing of a town. Um, towns had given some kind of connotation of uh, its character by its name, this is somewhat similar to like if you were to name a town uh, Los Banos or something to that effect. Um, you know, it has that, that negative connotation to it. Um, <clears throat> my apologies if you're from Los Banos, sorry. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it, it's basically, it's, it's Nothingsville is where he, he is brought to, where he lives. Um, uh, so this kid at age five loses his grandfather and father, becomes lame in both his feet, and gets his name changed to shameful one and moves to Nothingville. 
Um, it, it's interesting, interesting that Ziba points out to David Mephibosheth's lameness. It says that he's crippled in both his feet. Um, and you see to, you know, at this time, um, when someone was crippled or, or lame, they were, they were seen and considered uh, as more of a burden than anything. They were considered as useless, uh, which we know is not true nowadays, but, but at this time, they were considered to be not of any worth. And it's almost as Ziva saying to David, there, there's a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both his feet. And he's not of any value or worth search, uh, searching out, nor is he any threat to you. Um, you know, David, I, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're looking for. You want to show the kindness of, of God to, to, uh, to Jonathan, the house of Saul. Um, but there's only one person left. And really, he's not, he's not much to look at. Okay? He's not going to add anything to your, to your dynasty. He's not going to add anything to your kingdom. In fact, he's a burden. And you should probably just leave him in Nothingsville where he's at. Um, and, and again, Ziba is one who is benefiting from the land of Saul. He and his sons are, are the ones who are benefiting from all his produce and everything. So um, he knows, too, that and if, if I bring this kid in, there's a good chance that he might take away what I got going on right now. Um, but despite this, uh, David calls for him. And like I said, if you were to read on, you know, Ziba is a, is a very shady character. <clears throat> um, but despite this, upon hearing this, David immediately sends for him without hesitation. And um, going back to my first point, the invitation of the king. Now, I want us to take notice who it is who seeks out who. It is not Mephibosheth that seeks out the mercy and kindness of the king. But it is a king that pursues him. It is a king who has nothing to gain from Mephibosheth. Nothing to gain, nothing that gets added to him. In fact, this could bring on controversy. Bringing Mephibosheth uh, could bring on a burden to him. Mephibosheth adds nothing to King David. Yet it is, and it's Mephibosheth that, that would be blessed. But it is the king who seeks out Mephibosheth. It is the king that seeks out that which is lost. And we likewise are, are sought out by our heavenly king. Luke 9, or 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. We likewise are, are sought out. We are brought out of nothingness, brought out of more than a lowly state, but brought out of our darkness, brought out of our death, crippled by our sin, that we may enjoy the kindness, the salvation of our King in Christ. Moving on, verses 6 through 8. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show your kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, 
and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? Here we come to our second point, the kindness of the king. Now, I want you to imagine you're Mephibosheth, right? Your, your father, your grandfather, the king, uh, is, is killed in battle by the Philistines. Um, your nurse takes you up as a young boy. You're, you're, you fall, you're crippled, you move to a foreign place, and your uncle is established as, as king of Israel in, in the north, and, and David's king of Israel in the south, and uh, Judah in the south. And you were taken up and, and taken away out of fear that the Philistines or whoever might come to power would, would kill you as a five-year-old boy. And <clears throat> here you are, and you hear the news that your uncle, the king of Israel, in the north has been murdered. Now David is king over all Israel, and you are the last surviving heir to the throne from the line of Saul. And there comes a knock at the door. King David has found out that you exist, and he would like to see you. I don't know about you, but the only thing I'm thinking of is, well, I'm dead. Mephibosheth has no idea about the covenant that David has made with Jonathan. And it was common practice, as I said, to kill any competition you might have to the throne. Though Mephibosheth has done nothing against David, he is by birthright an enemy to the throne. Naturally, Mephibosheth falls down in humble reverence to the king, which is a natural response when brought before the king. But I'm sure that he is thinking that the only way I might escape this is if I show my lowly state, show to him that I'm no threat to him, that I just want to go back to my life in Lodavar and in Nothingsville and, and live out my my pitiful life there. <clears throat> and if I'm to escape with my life, it will be because I humbly plead for David's mercy. And David tells Mephibosheth not to fear. We must, <clears throat> we must also consider that, that some years prior to this, Israel was divided. And that's what's it's interesting to me is that just prior to this, Israel was divided over who should be the rightful king. And, and David takes not even, doesn't even blink when it comes to bringing Mephibosheth into his kingdom, bringing him in from Lodabar. What if Israel learned of Mephibosheth's existence and wanted to preserve Saul's kingly line? But like I said, David does not worry about this one bit because there's one thing that David has learned in his life up to this point, and that is the providence and sovereignty of God. 
despite the king's, King Saul's attacks and, and constant pursuits to kill David, David was still established as king of Israel, as promised. David knows it is the Lord's hand in which his throne was established in the first place. And, and what a great contrast we, hear, we have here from his predecessor, Saul, who even though was told by Samuel that, that the kingdom would be taken from him and given to another, still fights against the hand of God, still fights to, to pervert the word of God, to, to change God and the will of God. What a contrast we have to, to Herod the Great, who committed mass genocide against children in order to thwart the plans of God and preserve his place as king. What a great example we have when it comes to our own possessions. You know, how tightly we hold on to things that you know, we think we control. How tightly we hold on to our wealth, our possessions, our, our, our positions, not realizing that it is the Lord that has provided all of that, those things. And don't get me wrong, we need to be faithful in that which has been entrusted unto us. But it is the, it is the Lord who has established these things for us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think a prime example of this is, in, is when Christians don't tithe. It, it, it blows my mind, and they say, yeah, I, I trust in God. I trust in the providence and the sovereignty and the provisions of God. But I can't tithe because, well, then I wouldn't make it. We cling so hard with all our strength to these things, not realizing that it's never by these means in which we acquired them in the first place. David tells Mephibosheth not to fear because he's going to show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan. David keeps his oath to, by, to Jonathan by showing Mephibosheth the kindness that Jonathan requests of him back in 1 Samuel 20, 14 through 17. There, Jonathan requests that David show him and his house the love or kindness, as some of your translations may say, of the Lord. Uh, this is the kindness and love that transcends that of man. It goes above and beyond. It goes further. It would have been, as I said before, it would have been merciful for David to know that Mephibosheth was alive and said, okay, leave him alone. Make sure he's protected. Send some provisions for him. But David goes above that. It would have been enough if David brought Mephibosheth into his kingdom and said, you're going to stay here. You can build a, a shack or a home for yourself here just so I can keep my promise to Jonathan and protect you. It would have been enough for him to do the least. <clears throat> It would have been merciful to allow him to remain as he was not to become a burden on David and his kingdom. It would have been enough to just tolerate Mephibosheth 
I will tolerate you for the sake of the oath I have taken to your father. Nothing more. But that's not what Christian, godly love does. I remember listening to a um, debate that um, uh, Christian apologist Norman Geisler uh, had with someone, uh, or actually I don't think it was a debate, I think he was giving a lecture, and he said that someone um, stood up and, and said that there was uh, a command that, that God had really left out. And Geisler said, I could hardly wait to hear what God had forgotten. Uh, the man proceeded to say that, that nowhere in the Bible will you see God commanding his people to be tolerant. To this man, tolerance was a, uh, a key value to have in, in society, in, in civilization. Geisler simply replied that tolerance was nowhere in the Bible because it is too weak. Tolerance says put up with them, but love says reach out to them. To go above and beyond this is a love and kindness that we as Christians should be characterized by. I believe that both Christians and the world confuse this. You see, the, the, the world believes that to be loving is to be tolerant of all things, no matter what. But love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. I have seen... Christians, on the other hand, that believe that because they are being tolerant of others, that they are being loving. Then there are those Christians that show bitterness toward others and believe that they are, are exhibiting love by, toler by simply tolerating them. David here exemplifies what it means to show the kindness and love of God. Here to Mephibosheth, he, who is considered an enemy of the king, it mimics with what Christ says in, in Matthew four, uh, chapter 5, verse 40 through 41. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone affords you to go one mile, go with him too. The love of, love of God is it's much more than tolerating or doing the bare minimum. It goes above and beyond. This is the type of love that Christians should be known for. especially around this time. I mean, it should be all the time, but... David then continues to reveal just in what way he's going to show this kindness to Mephibosheth. He's going to restore to him all that, was want, that once belonged to his grandfather Saul. This, of course, is a, is a place of honor reserved for those of, of greatest importance to eat also at the king's table. David restores to Mephibosheth all that was lost to him by his grandfather Saul, including a high status among the people. And this is, this is huge because Mephibosheth, as I said, was seen as a burden. He was seen as useless. He was lame. He was of no value, really, to society. And here, not only king, does King David bring him in, but puts him at a seat of honor at his own table. Here we see another parallel 
For this, beloved, is, is exactly what our Lord and Savior has done for us, has it not? Jesus came to show the love of God to us by restoring to us that which was lost by our forefather, Adam. The land was a great blessing, but it is overshadowed here by the fact that Mephibosheth now feasts at the king's table where he can freely commune with the king. The Garden of Eden was great. I'm sure it was beautiful. It was paradise. But what made the Garden of Eden so great was that God was there in the midst of man. Man freely communed with God. <clears throat> Jesus came to show the love of God to us by restoring to us that which was lost by Adam. The Garden of Eden, uh, this was lost by Adam, but at Christ's death, that curtain was torn. Restoring what? Our fellowship with God, our access to the Father. Mephibosheth's reaction is of great astonishment and gratitude. Here, Mephibosheth was expecting to be killed by the king, but instead receives mercy on top of blessing. And he calls himself a dog, a dead dog. A dog was a scavenger of an animal and was commonly used as an, as an insult. Um, dogs were not kept as pets as we have them today. They were scavenger animals. They were um, not pets. And a dead dog was even more so of a debased thing to compare oneself to. Mephibosheth reveals his humility here. And what is interesting is that the phrase dead dog only occurs two other times in the Old Testament. One time that occurs uh, before this is spoken by David himself. Uh, David says to Saul when he was attempting to kill him, 1 Samuel 24, 14, After whom had the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? Just as David humbled himself before Saul, stating that he is no threat to Saul, Mephibosheth humbles himself before David. How greatly this is missing in modern evangelicalism today. Modern Christians and Christian, and Christian, Christian messages of today act as if you're doing God a favor by coming to him. That you're adding something to God. I often correlate it with, they, they paint God as, as, a, as a pining, love-struck teenager that's, he really wants to have fellowship with you. He's lonely without you. Would you please come to him? That's not the God of the Bible. Like King David, the God of the Bible does not need me. I add nothing to him. Yet he uses me to bring glory to himself. I don't add to his glory. <clears throat> Christians today treat God as nothing more than a, than a genie that is here to grant our desires and wishes. He's often person, uh, personified as a spiritual life coach, aiding in your efforts to reach the greatest potential of yourself. Sadly, I would not 
characterize the Christian of America as humble and grateful. If you are indeed in Christ, how much more have we been given? How much more undeserving are you of his grace and mercy? How much more are we indebted to God? The attitude of Mephibosheth should be the attitude of every believer who has received the mercy and kindness of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. This should be our attitude when we walk through those doors to worship. When we wake up in the morning and we think of all that we have in Christ, we should echo Psalm 8:4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Much like Mephibosheth, we deserve death and the wrath of God, but instead we receive eternal life. And on top of that, more blessings than we could possibly count. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The people of God should be characterized by love and great humility. And in doing so, we also mimic our Lord Jesus, who humbled himself and took on flesh to die on a cross. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to his house I have given to our master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, my king, commanded his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Next we shall see, third point, love. The love of the king. Mephibosheth, who was once a de dependent on others, will now have others dependent upon him. David restores to Mephibosheth his inheritance. Not only does David give to Mephibosheth a great inheritance, but also the means to tend to that inheritance. The fact that, that Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants shows the vastness of this land that they were taking care of. Shows the richness of that which Mephibosheth is about to inherit. As great as this is, the love of the king is shown in verse 11. It says, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. Not only does Mephibosheth not receive condemnation from the king, but blessing. And to top it off, he accepted and treated as one of the king's sons. He who was orphaned at a young age is now accepted and treated as one of the king's own sons. They would have fulfilled his promise and oath to Jonathan by sparing Mephibosheth's life and grant him all that was once Saul's. But David goes further and allows Mephibosheth to sit at the king's table, a place of honor always, and to be viewed as and, and treated as if he's one of the king's sons, adopted. Mephibosheth is essentially adopted into the king's family. Puritan Bartholomew Ashwood states, adoption is the taking of a person's state, I'm sorry, 
Adoption is a taking of a person that are strangers and undeserving in themselves into a state and relation of sons and heirs, bringing them into a new family and condition. And such is the adoption of the sons of God. It is a translation of called and sanctified souls out of the family of Satan into the family of God, end quote. Mephibosheth has a son named Micah in whom is, um, is further evidence of, of David's oath being fulfilled. The line of Saul and Jonathan is, is going to be preserved. And Mephibosheth receives the honor, blessing, just as his son shall. This is the, the love of the king. The love of the king does not end with Mephibosheth. It continues. Now, folks, it is obvious that this story of Mephibosheth and David it, it has direct correlation and, and parallels to that of Christ. It is a beautiful picture of what has taken part in the lives of us if we indeed are in Christ. Like Mephibosheth, we are by birthright natural enemies of God because of our forefather David, our Adam. We too are a fallen and broken people that is sought out by our king. We who are cast away and have no worth to bring to our king are brought to a place of value. We too are deserving of death but receive grace and blessing. In Christ, we too have a great inheritance to look forward to. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we also are invited to our Lord's table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. And we too have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had, been, God had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Ephesians 1, 5. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the riches of his grace. As Mephibosheth asked the question, who am I? My king, who am I? I add nothing to you. In fact, I, you should probably kill me. Who am I to receive not only your mercy, not only your grace, but your blessing that you allow me to come into your kingdom and you give me a great inheritance that I did not earn, that truly is not mine. Who am I that you would allow me in my disgraceful position to sit at your table every night and be treated as if I were your son? Who am I? <clears throat> and we hear, it's as if David says to him, it's not because 
of who you are, Mephibosheth. It's because of who Jonathan was. It's because of my love for your father that you receive this grace, that you receive this mercy. Not because of who you are, but because of my love for Jonathan. So the Father says to us, if we are in Christ, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of my great love of my son, because of who he is, and because of what he has done, do you receive this? Because of my great love of my son, are you accepted as my child? Mephibosheth was extended this honor because of his lineage to Jonathan. It was this reason and this reason alone. If you are here today and you are outside of Christ, then you will likewise be outside of this kindness, this mercy. You will be outside of this kingdom. You will continue to be an enemy of God and suffer the wrath of the king. Verse 13 says and ends the chapter. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I remember when I first studied this text, having an issue with that last sentence. Why does he put that there? So I scoured through commentaries, and they gave me nothing. <laughs> and uh, it, it seems as though it's, its whole purpose is simply to summarize the previous 12 verses. And that may be. And, then, um, and I was going to do the same. But the last sentence there it just nagged at me. And the more I thought about it, the more it, it, it nags at me. And it just stands out. And as I read it over and over again, it was almost as if the writer wanted to remind the reader that though this great blessing occurred, Mephibosheth still remained lame in both his feet. And though we may be children of the living God, we still have the effects of our fallen condition. The effects of sin that we have to deal with. But the other part of the verse is that he lived in Jerusalem and ate always at the king's table. And I wonder how many people still saw Mephibosheth as this shameful person after this. The king's love for Mephibosheth overshadowed his current condition. No matter what you may be going through right now, whatever struggles or heartaches, Take courage in knowing that these things do not define who you are in Christ. Even if your circumstances are good and everything is going well, these circumstances likewise do not define you, nor do they bring worth to you. Our identity, Christian, 
And our worth is found entirely in Jesus Christ. Our hope is found entirely in Jesus Christ. Not in our circumstances. I'll share with you a quick story. I think I've shared the story before. But when I was a senior in high school, I learned at my Baptist church of, of a prominent member of the community who had terminal cancer. And doctors had given him six months to live. And I felt that maybe I should go pray with him. But I was like, Lord, I don't know this guy. I've never met him. And it never went away. It kept, you know, I ever have all those things that the Lord just keeps pressing upon your heart. And so I thought to myself, being naive and arrogant, that maybe the Lord is having me go over there to pray over him. And he gets healed. And I'm like, I mean, how guilty will I feel if that's what the Lord's calling me to do and I don't do it and this guy dies? Okay, Lord, here I go. Knock at the door. Hi, you don't know me. I go to the Baptist church here. Um, I heard your husband is dying of cancer. I was really eloquent with words um, <laughs> high school. And, and uh, I just feel like the Lord's, you know, having me come over here and pray over him. She's like, well, let me see if he's up for a visit. And she said, go ahead and come on in. And he's sitting there in his recliner. And I come over, and I, I tell him <clears throat> who I was and why I was there. And I, I, I was honest with him. I was like, I don't want to be here. I'll be honest with you. I don't want to be here. I'm very uncomfortable, and I don't want to do this. But I just feel like the Lord's having me come over and maybe pray over you. Like, who knows? You know, maybe you'll get healed. And he smiled, and, and he said, listen, um, if you feel like the Lord's calling you to pray over me, I would not dare hinder that or dissuade you from that. <clears throat> I want you to know something, though. I am grateful. I am grateful for this. And I'm like, this is not what I expected. Okay? And I told you, should I not pray for you? And he said, let me explain something to you. There were a lot of people who were going to die today like that, unexpectedly, never get a chance to say goodbye to their family. God has given me six months to say goodbye. God has given me six months to say goodbye to my children and my wife to put my affairs in order. And I know my children are going to have the funds to go to college, and I know that my wife is going to be taken care of. But more than that, more than the six months that I get to say goodbye to them, I'm anticipating seeing my Savior. I look forward to this. I've been waiting for this. And though I, I long to see my children grow up, get married, have children of their own, to grow old with my wife. I long to see my Savior.
I've been waiting for this. You don't need to worry about me. So I blurted out a pathetic prayer, and I left. Six months later, he died. <clears throat> there was a bitterness in me a little bit, because I was like, Lord, I didn't want to do that. I felt stupid the whole time. And, and like, what was the point in that? But this man was a prime example of how his condition did not define him, but who he was to his king. Thomas Watson says, one of the greatest ways to glorify God is to be content in his providence. One last note. When I think about Mephibosheth sitting at the king's table in his shameful state, crippled feet, begin to think about something. When you sit at a table, what is covered? What is not seen? your legs, your feet. At the king's table, Mephibosheth's shame was covered. And we likewise have our shame covered at our king's table. This covering and acceptance we have was purchased by his broken body and his spilled blood. And we are now children of the living God because of the goodness of Christ. And then, as we gather together these coming weeks around family and loved ones, may we be reminded of the great feast in which we who are in Christ will be at, gathered around our merciful King's table. Amen.